Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. I know many of you are very passionate people. Matter of fact, I don't know any of you that I know who are not passionate about a couple of things. And there are a few things, certain debates, that have been raging on between how you do things, well, either the right way or the wrong way. Now, we all know there's the right way, there's the wrong way, and then there's Tim White's way, right? So it's either one or the other. So we can either get it right or, or not. So it's, it's one or the other. So, but there's often some things that we think, for an, an example, do you put salt on watermelon or not? When eating a slice, <laughs> see, passionate people, I'm telling you. So when eating a slice of pizza, do you fold the slice or just eat it right out? Or in my hometown, some of you know, is it pronounced Coweta County, Coweta County, or Kaida County? Or, reference to my hometown, since it is my birthday, is it pronounced Sonoa? Sonoya, or the right way, Sonoy. Some of you have no idea what that is, but just Google it and you'll figure it out. Is it pecan or pecan? Do you slice a sandwich diagonally or do you slice it horizontally? Coke or Pepsi? How about this? When you're eating an Oreo, do you break the Oreo in half and lick the icing or just eat it right out? Which one? Now, if we're really honest this morning, there's some who are pretty passionate about those things, but in reality, let's be honest. Those are just fun little ways for us to break the ice together. Uh, whether or not you fold your pizza or bite your pizza or you put the toilet paper this way or that way, none of those things really matter. Today, though, some of you say, yes, it does. Well, that's that there again. You're passionate people. But today, what we get the privilege to do is we get to talk about something that really matters and really something that we may not really think an awful lot about, but something that we just do without much thought of it. Today, as the praise team and Steve and the choir led us today, we're talking about prayer. So I invite you, if you have your Bible today, to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 as we talk about prayer. Now, it's pretty commonplace to hear people say things like, our thoughts and prayers are with you. Maybe you've been told that. Have you ever been told our thoughts and prayers are with you? You hear it on the news. You hear it on national news, local news, newspaper. Everyone loves praying for people. But what do people mean when they say that they're praying for you? And more importantly, here's the question that we have to ask today. Do people mean what Jesus meant when they reference prayer? And the more I read the Bible, the more I listen to God's Word, the more I question how much praying the way that Jesus commands right here is actually done. Before we delve into thinking that we may know what prayer is and uh, leaving our own minds and our imaginations to what prayer is, I think that it's important for us to see what Jesus says about prayer. So let's read the Bible together in Matthew chapter 6, 
to see if we are seeing the same thing this morning. And then after we read the Bible, let's pray together and ask the Holy Spirit of God to help us see what He is wanting us to see. So let's read the Bible. Matthew chapter 6, begin with me in verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We are comforted this morning, if we're honest, just at the face value of your word. Know that even as we pray now, coming to you desperate to hear a word from you, you already know what we need. You, Lord God, stand ready through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to teach us from your word. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now at Oxford now, for a little while, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember, it's the Sermon on the Mount are those instructions for life and the kingdom of God. And as in chapter 6, we get instructions about this deep internal life that Jesus is calling us, that Jesus is giving us an inner life that expresses itself externally through things like prayer, giving, and fasting. And today we get the privilege at Oxford to begin to look at prayer. And for the next few Sundays and for a little while, we're going to be doing our diligence to look at the Lord's prayer or this model prayer as the Lord is teaching us to pray. And so what I want to do is God is calling Oxford to think about prayer. I'm going to do my diligence from this end, from every angle, to have you listen as we consider prayer together. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be turning our attention towards prayer. There again, the reason is, is because the Lord is calling us to turn our attention as a church towards prayer. And so I'm going to be working with the prayer team so that you and us together as a church, we can get the most out of these opportunities together as we consider His Word. So stay tuned. There'll be more information. But we're going to consider prayer. But I want you to notice something this morning. Notice the way that Jesus begins these instructions of the deep abiding inner life that He's calling us to. Look at how this whole section of Scripture begins in chapter 6. Look at that word. I'm reading the English Standard Version. And the first word in chapter 6 is beware. Now, how many lessons on prayer have you ever heard that begin with beware? We spend so much time urging prayer, but what about warning about prayer? What is it about prayer that we need to be aware of? And of all the things for us to be aware of, why prayer? You would guess that with prayer, that would be one of those things that we would get, get right just by simply doing it. Something is better than Nothing, right? Wrong. And the fact that our Lord is teaching us to pray should show us. We should 
call our attention to this. If he starts with beware, then the fact that he is even having to teach us to pray should show us how far we have fallen from him and how pervasive sin is. You see, this is what Jesus is telling us. Not even something as intimate as prayer is safe from being perverted by sin. You know the reason? The reason I think is pretty clear, and hopefully we'll see this together. Prayer is one of those areas where self can take center stage. You don't believe me? Well, next time you pray, try praying without saying I in a single prayer. It's difficult. Now, you can do it, but it takes some practice. Lord, I... See, you're already done. If you start out and say, Lord, I thank you, you're already finished. Prayer is one of those moments where we can get so wrapped up in ourself. And here's the reason that self is a problem. Because at the center of sin is self. Self-worship, being in awe of self. If we're not careful. This is why Jesus begins with the beware. If we are not careful, we can even turn the plans and the purposes of God for us as an enterprise of self. Think about how self-centered and self-concerned we are. Listen, listen to me carefully. It's not that self is of no concern. Don't hear me say that. But sin puts self at the center, and self can never be at the center for a person who's worshiping the thrice holy God. Here's an example. Think about this. We refer to heaven's gates and hell's lanes. Heaven is good because of good stuff, right? Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to go to hell. The reason people want to go to heaven is because of all the good stuff. But here's the danger. If we're not careful. We can judge the good stuff based upon what we like. Hell, on the other end, is horrible because of terrible and terrifying stuff. But there again, what's the determination of what is terrible and terrifying? There again, it's us. This is why you have certain songs that talk about heaven, that is just blatant idolatry, whether it's, well, I won't name any type of music. There's several types. You can go across the spectrum. Even in some Christian circles, they make an idol out of heaven. Now, I think there's a very thin line between what I'm trying to get our minds to engage today, but this is what idolatry is. Idolatry is this thin line, and if we're not careful... We can make heaven and hell into whatever we want it to be. And that's not what we're called to do. And you say, well, wait a minute. Why in the world are you calling us this morning to walk such a thin line? Of all the things to talk about, can't we talk about something else? Why are you calling us to walk through this thin line? If it is a thin line, stay off the line. But the reason that we're doing it is one reason. We thought prayer was all right until we read chapter 6. And if we're real honest, Listening to the Bible, listening to God speak, if we're real honest, then we learn how little we know about prayer. You see, nothing is safe. We are all sinful. We need saving. Listen to me. Jesus has come to be our Savior. Jesus has come. And this Word. He doesn't go to the religious crowd and say, you know what, man, you guys sure are better than that drunk in the street over there. No, He doesn't say that. 
Sometimes he looks at them and he says, you might as well be in the gutter and put him in the palace. This is what Jesus does because God comes in and he sees our very hearts so we know the pervasiveness of sin. Nothing is safe. We need a Savior. But here's the good news. Jesus has come to be our Savior. And in that salvation, he says, by the way, you want to know how to pray? Here's the way. You want to know how to give? Here's the way. You want to know how to fast? Well, hey, if we're going to fast, we better do it the right way, right? We better make sure in everything that we do, we do it the right way. You see, the worst thing that we could do is say, how dare He teach us to pray? The best thing that we can do is order our lives around everything that He says. So I hope that you're in awe of Jesus this morning. I hope that you just are in a position where you can't get over how amazing God is and you just are amazed at His absolute grace. Jesus has come to be our Lord and Savior. He has come to be our absolute delight, our utmost treasure. He has come to be the joy of our desire. This is exactly what Bach meant when he wrote his classical masterpiece for the church. Yesu, joy of man's desiring. Listen to the words in English. Jesus, joy of man's desiring. Holy wisdom, love most bright. Drawn by Thee, our soul aspiring. Soar to uncreated light. Word of God, our flesh that fashioned. With the fire, life impassioned. Striving still to truth unknown. Soaring, dying, round thy throne. Through the way where hope is guiding. Hark, what peaceful music rings. Where the flock in thee confiding. Drink of joy from deathless Theirs is beauty's fairest pleasure. Theirs is wisdom's holiest treasure. Thou dost ever lead thine own in the love of joys unknown. Now who in their right mind would insert themselves you notice what was missing in the English text by Robert Bridges from Bach? No mention of heaven. You say, well, there's something about soaring and a throne. No mention of what we may talk about when we talk about heaven and early gates and streets of gold and loved ones being there. I think of all that's going to be there, but that's not our object. The object is not what we want, unless what we want is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He is the joy of your desire. You see, here's the truth. The Christian faith never begins with man. Nor does it begin with man's pursuit of God. The Christian faith begins with God. And it tells a wonderful story of this God who's pursuing us. So then what are we doing? We are pursuing a God who is pursuing us. And this is the beauty of Christianity. 
We are always the benefactors. He is forever the benevolent, kind, and loving God. We are always and forever indebted to Him. We are always and forever the recipients of His love. And He is the giver of His love. Now, don't you love Him? Don't you love Him? You know why you love Him? Because He loved you first. As we've already said today, and I'm glad that we said it, that way I don't have to say it here, you all know today is my birthday. I have a confession to make. I've never told anybody this publicly. Now you're listening, right? I was an unexpected child. I was not an uh uh-oh baby, but I was a surprise. My mother and daddy didn't plan on having another baby. Well, I've got a brother. I'm not an only child. There's two of us. Listen to me carefully. Even though I may have been a surprise to mom and dad, I was not a surprise to God. He has loved me since He laid the foundations of the earth. And listen to me. He has loved you too for that long. Before you even gave a thought of Him, He had already set you apart for Himself. You say, that's a mystery. I say, yes it is. But isn't it a beautiful mystery to know that there's a God in heaven who loved you before you even gave a thought of Him? It's amazing. And you say, wait a minute, so is our faith about us then? Where do we fit in the picture? Is there any picture of us? And is our faith about us? Sure, our faith is about us. Listen carefully. But never with us at the center. It's never about you. It's never about me. Listen, not even on my birthday. It's not about me. It's not about you. This is the confession that is marked Christianity, the fact that a benevolent God would choose to create, not because He needed to create. If He had never been the Creator, He'd have still been just as much God. But He chose to create. And then, after He chose to create, He would then come and die for His creatures. That's the reason why we stand in awe and we reflect and because we can never get over this good news of the Gospel and we should never get over this news that God loved us first. And He came seeking and saving the lost ones. You should never get over that. In the very beginning of Christian reflection on Scripture, the early church, they, were, they read their Bible really well. They were really excellent readers of their Bible. And so what they did, they set out a creed. The creed of Nicaea. Now listen carefully. And here's a misconception. This is worth you writing down. The creed is there not to replace the Bible. The creed is there to help people know how to read the Bible. When we read the Bible, we read the Bible as Christians. We read it through a Trinitarian lens. We see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see redemption all throughout. So the markers of the creed, they didn't try to replace the Bible. They taught us how to read the Bible. And so in 325 and then later in 381, the Nicene Creed was the fruit of Christian reflection But there was a certain phrase when the framers were putting it together that captivated them. You know what phrase it was? It's a, it's a gospel phrase. It's a, it's a Greek phrase. It's the phrase pro 
nobis. Let's all say that together. Pro nobis. One more time. Pro nobis. And you know what it means? You know what you just said? You just said for our sake. Listen to the creed. Pro nobis. For us men. For our sake. And for our salvation. Christ came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost and the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified pro nobis. He was crucified for us. Under Pontius Pilate, He suffered. He was buried. And on the third day, He rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of the Father. You say, why did He do all those things? The best, deepest theological way that we can speak. Why did God do it for you? For you. Do you know that? God did what He did for you. It's amazing how learning something so great done for you has the tendency of making you forget all about yourself. The Gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for us, should leave us with this attitude that says, for me? For me? God says to us with nail-pierced hands, yes, for you. And if such a thought leaves us thinking, Anything other than how great is our God, then listen to me carefully. If you have any other thought than how great is our God, then I can say to you that you have never known Him. See, this is the attitude of prayer. This is how we approach prayer. Overwhelmed by the fact that this God would love and I would just wonder, I just wonder. Here we're beginning to talk about prayer and here we are camping out a lot on this beware phrase and Jesus is saying, when you pray, don't do this, do this. I wonder if these high thoughts of God, if this is the way that you begin your prayer. I love the words of one of my favorite preachers. I figured we're talking about patristics today. That's the study of the early church. So we might as well stay. We've talked about the creed. We might as well go to the best patristic preacher, man by the name of John Chrysostom, by the way, one of my favorite preachers. Cool guy. His name was John. Chrysostom was his title. They called this preacher, Chrysostom means golden mouth. So hey, that's a great title for a preacher, right? Golden mouth. So let's hear what the golden mouth has to say. Listen to what he says. When you pray, it is as if you were entering into a palace. Not a palace on earth, but far more awesome palace in heaven. When you enter there, you do so with complete attentiveness and fitting respect. For in the houses of kings, all turmoil is set aside and silence reigns. Yet there you are being joined by choirs of angels. You are in communion with archangels and singing with the seraphim who sing with great awe their spiritual hymns and sacred songs to God, the Lord of all. So when you are praying, mingle with these voices, patterning yourself according to their mystical order. It's not to human beings that you're praying, but to God. 
who is present everywhere, who hears even before you speak, and who already knows the secret of your heart. If you pray to this One, you shall receive a great reward for your Father who sees in secret shall reward you openly. And I think that Jesus is pretty clear here. There are two ways to pray. Just two ways. The right way and the wrong way. So realistically, there's really just one way to pray. So what I want us to see from this text, I want us to see the way to pray. And there's two ways. Number one, there's the wrong way to pray. Now, under that, we have two components of the wrong way to pray. Centered on self, as well as a minimal reward. Now, that's the wrong way to pray. Remember what Jesus is doing here. He's warning us about our attitude of worship, how we approach Him. And so He he says, don't be like the hypocrite. The hypocrite, remember, those are those stage actors who like to put on a show. They may fool the crowd, but God sees their heart. God sees the heart of a hypocrite and He sees it consumed with Himself. And as a result, they have themselves as their own consolation prize. You know what the problem of the hypocrite when they pray? The problem of the hypocrite has when they pray is they're blind by their own greatness. Realistically, they can't see anything beyond themselves and they want everyone else to see how great they are. They want to parade themselves in all of their greatness before others. Now, we may have not have gone to the lengths that Jesus is saying here, sounding a trumpet and walking through the streets and all of those things, but, but listen carefully. How many times have you and I done something noble just so that we could be seen by others and they think better of us. As I was writing these words, reflecting on this, I really began to think about that there is not anyone who is more vulnerable than this than a man in my position. as a preacher. This is what I do, right? I speak publicly. I pray publicly. I'll come and see you. And when I do see you, You ask me to pray, and it's my delight to pray. It's my joy to pray. I'm glad to pray. And sometimes after I pray, people say things like, thank you, or or they say, what an amazing prayer. Or I've had people say before, I love the way that you pray. And I think that people are being kind, but God forbid that I ever pray to receive the praise of men. God forbid that I pray more with you than I do before God in my closet. God forbid that I enjoy praying more than I enjoy you approving of my praying. God forbid that I delight in you enjoying the prayer more than I enjoy praying. You see the problem with a hypocrite? You see what I'm saying? God forbid that I be a hypocrite. God forbid it with you too. Hypocrites are too easily impressed. We who know the glory of God, we are, who are amazed by Him, we know better. Just like that movie. What's that movie? It's uh, one of Billy Graham's favorite movies. You may have not known this, but his grandson told us one time, Crocodile Dundee. You remember that scene? Where Crocodile Dundee's out with his whatever her name is, and they're getting robbed, and this guy comes up to him, and he says, give me your money. And then she says, he's got a knife. And he says, oh, that's not a knife. And he pulls out his knife, right? He says, there's a knife. And he's, you know, slice a guy's jacket up, whatever the case may be. That's like us. 
all the dangers, all the toils, all the snares may come about us. We may have the temptation to go and stand before men, but we may never stand before men unless we have first knelt before God. We who know what true glory is, what impresses the hypocrite should be unimpressive to us who know God. Because the hypocrite is to be pitied in many ways because I think that the hypocrite lacks any real confidence. They do all that they do before others because in reality they are people, I believe, hypocrites are people that have zero confidence. Why do you say they have no confidence? All their confidence depends on their own efforts. But here's the question that's always haunting the hypocrite. Always haunting a hypocrite is how much is enough? What does it take to get God to listen? Eight hours a day? Ten hours a day? Sixteen hours a day? How many words do you have to put in your prayer? How do you have to pray loud? Soft? What's the limit to get God to listen? This is why Jesus says they're heaping up empty phrases in verse 7. You know why? Because they think that prayer depends on them. But here's the question that the hypocrite has to ask himself. What happens in those situations when you don't know how to pray? You ever had that kind of situation? Well, you didn't know what to pray. I've stood over the bed of some who have been sick and dying. And honestly, as a preacher, I don't know how to pray because I know that it would be better for them to go with the Lord. But I'm looking at this family member who is distraught. I don't know how to pray. Thanks be to God. I don't have to know how to pray. I just have to know to pray. Well, the hypocrite, let's be honest, he'd probably never have those types of situations where he didn't know how to pray, but let's just suppose that he did. Where is their confidence? You see, these poor people are living, these hypocrites, I believe they're living in a cul-de-sac of a small neighborhood on the edge of their own tiny little world. How pitiful they are. Look at these words here. Look at verse 5. These words are haunting. Jesus says, Truly I say to you. Now, that's that word that we pay attention to. Sometimes He says it twice. Truly, truly. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. You see what He's doing? He's distancing Himself. When they pray, He says, They're going about in the street corners to be seen by others. And he says, them out there, they have their reward. And what a pathetic reward it is. The empty praise of fickle men and their own happy thoughts about themselves. Jesus says, verse 6, don't be like Here's the right way to pray. Look at verse 6. The right way to pray. Two components of the right way to pray. Centered on Christ. And as a result, a great reward. Look at what he says here in verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret, He will reward you. In other words, Jesus says when you pray, you come in awe of a transcendent God whose image you are made in. Not an image that you have made, but one in whose image you are made in. When you pray, 
be overwhelmed by the presence of God. Prayer is worship. But it's not self-worship. It's not self-worship. It's worship of the God who has revealed Himself in the Scriptures, who stands above us, who stands with us, who invites us through the ministry of His Son to stand with Him for forever. So when we pray, we pray Psalm 86.11. It says, Teach me Your way, O Lord, that I may walk in Your truth. Unite my heart, which is so prone to wonder. Unite my heart to fear Your name. When you pray, I pray that when you are in your prayer, you are overwhelmed not by who's listening or by what you say. You may stumble and stutter, but be overwhelmed by how great the God whose presence you're in is. And this is exactly what Jesus has come to do as we read in Psalm 86.11. It says, Unite my heart to fear Your name. This is exactly the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has come to unite our hearts to fear His name. What did He say? He's going to say later, He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from Me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And how is He able to do that? Because He, listen, this is the way, this is the whole ministry of Jesus, because He has united Himself with us by, without ceasing to be what He was, became what He was not through the incarnation. He has become what was not. And He has united our hearts to His in the ministry of redemption through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Listen, before Jesus came, we were incapable of praying. This is why He has to teach us to pray. Before He came, we were incapable of praying. But now that Jesus has come, now that He has accomplished redemption through the cross, we can experience God like never before. No wonder He teaches us to pray. He... Our God, our salvation, He is inviting us to do what has never been done before. And that is enjoy the unaltered presence of God through the ministry of the Son, through the Holy Spirit as we pray. This is how we pray. Even when we're fearful, even when we don't know what to say, we are overwhelmed by the presence of God, who needs the empty approval of man when you have the approval of God? Who needs to drum up some empty phrase when the Father knows what you need before you ask? Who needs to worry about what to say when the Spirit is interceding with us with groanings that are too deep? Words. This is why we go into our chambers. Prayer is not about being seen by others. Now listen, this is not a call for no more public praying. Some of us don't like to pray in public. Some of us probably shouldn't pray in public lest we be a hypocrite. But this is not a call. Jesus is not saying, you know what, hey, Oxford, you having that Wednesday night prayer meeting where you all all get together and pray? Don't do that anymore. Jesus is not saying that, okay? We're still going to gather on Wednesday night as many as are here. We're going to pray for the sick. We're going to pray for the lost. We're going to pray and we're going to encourage one another's hearts. We're going to unite our hearts further to fear His name. He's not calling and saying, do away with any other public praying. What's He saying? Look at this. Look at your Bible. When you pray, go into your room. You see that word? 
Now, you can't see it in the English, but let me tell you what it says in the Greek. That word there, room. Your translation may have storeroom or something like that. And this is the reason why this is important. That word there is beautiful. Temeon. Temeon. And it's a word used for the place where you keep your treasure. No one knows about it. But it's a storehouse full of your treasure. You see, here's what Jesus is telling us by using that word. When we pray, we are not trying to get treasure. When we pray, we are not trying to get treasure. We are praying already in possession of everything that we need. Take that one little Greek word, temeon, and it will change the way you pray. You're not praying trying to drum up something. You're praying in possession of everything that we need. A treasure already awaiting us when we pray, marked with the crimson blood of Jesus. All the promises of God, Paul would say, find their yes in Jesus. Their absolution in Jesus. So I think that after looking at this text, after seeing Jesus say beware and making it pretty clear, I think that it's pretty clear the choice is yours. You can either pray in hypocrisy and spend your time restlessly heaping up empty phrases, feeling like God is distant from you, or you can pray as a worshiper and you can rest in the arms of your heavenly Father who loves you. Choose wisely. Let's pray together. Father, help us to pray the way that Jesus has taught us to pray. Not as a hypocrite, but as a worshiper. We love You. We trust You. And we are Yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.